0: Hello and welcome to episode 129 of Page One: The Writers Podcast. I'm Tarek.
1: And I'm Marco, and thanks for joining us on the podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And this is nearly episode 130. I mean, oh, crazy, can't quite, isn't it? can't quite believe we've we've got here, but here we are. Uh, and if if this is your first episode, please do check out the back catalogue because we've spoken to some fantastic authors, screenwriters, video game writers, comedians, journalists. So there's bound to be someone that you're interested in. So please do have a look at the back catalogue there on your app. But before you do that, Listen to this episode because we've got a fantastic guest this week who has a lot of buzz around her.
0: Yeah, a lot of buzz indeed. And uh, her debut novel, Children of Gods and Fighting Men, is out today at time of recording or yesterday, if you're listening to this on day of release. Her name is, of course, Shauna Lawless, and she uh, has written an epic historical fantasy set in Ireland, and it's based on the myths and legends of Ireland. So it's it's quite a kind of a fresh twist on a fantasy novel, isn't it?
1: Yeah, we sort of discuss in the podcast that you know it's it's a good uh, theme to have because yeah. everyone has some knowledge of Irish mythology, but not yep. in the sort of detail that that Shona brings to life in this in this brilliant novel, which I have had the chance to to read. And it really is great if you if you like your fantasy novels. Um, so yeah, and it also really interesting journey into getting it published as well yeah, b- yeah. because she did the usual process of um submitting to agents and stuff didn't get anywhere was almost getting ready to self-publish and then suddenly the uh, head of zeus who are a big publisher come along and, and make her an offer and then she's also yeah. getting offers from agents at that point as fantastic. well. fantastic so
0: and just it, another example of you know don't don't give up and just keep on pushing through and uh and no one's no one's journey is the same
1: exactly yeah it shows the importance of persistence and and believing in your work so um yeah no it's a really great chat Uh, so uh, we'll get straight to it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook but then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest
0: but for now on with the podcast
1: the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome
0: or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy, and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well.
1: And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story Yeah, I'll start with the question which I always do which is did you always want to be a writer because I know you, you've been working in finance.
2: Um, well when I was younger um, I was a prolific reader and I wrote my own stories so I always enjoyed writing but I think that's different to thinking that you'll have a career yeah. as a writer um, and I didn't think that when I was younger. Um, it sort of seemed like something other people did <laughs> mm. um, it didn't seem something that you know was on my career list shall we say mm-hmm. you know when you're, you're um, at your um school career sessions um, it wasn't something that I really thought about um, I know that there were other areas of writing I could have gone into maybe journalism yeah. things like that but when it came to writing, I always enjoyed writing my own pieces. Um, I didn't have a huge enjoyment for writing essays or something factual or a topic that was prescribed. I liked using my imagination and even from a a young age, um, fantasy and mythology and historical fiction was something I gravitated towards. And sometimes you'd get you know, teachers or other people would read your stories, and they would be really into that. And other mm. times, people would read that, and it would be a bit. Well, that's not real literature, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. So, I, maybe because of that, maybe because it didn't seem like I was writing something that was always commercial, always acceptable. It just didn't seem like a career. Um. It and I was happy with that. You know, I was happy um, to write as my hobby. Mm-hmm.
1: And but when you were writing it as a hobby, well, I suppose I suppose the question that falls on from that is when when did you decide to try and do it more than as a hobby? You know, when did you start showing it to other people? I suppose.
2: Well, my first novel I wrote I was about nineteen to twenty. Um, it was a middle grade story mm-hmm. about fairies and giant lizards. <laughs> That lived in the mountain. Yeah, (laughs) Um, I really enjoyed (laughs) writing it. It was a lot of fun, Um, and I showed it to a few people. I didn't really seriously try to get it published. I think I sent it off to two agents, and um, that was that. I didn't really do too much more than that for me. Again, it was just a hobby. It was something fun, but I did show some friends and family. Mm -hmm. So that was my first attempt. And I had a lot of fun, but then I graduated from university, went traveling, got a job, got married, had kids. And so writing a novel during my mid to late 20s was something I did ad hoc. And again, it was yeah. a hockey, but it didn't produce any more novels. It was just maybe a few short stories here and there or journals or ideas.
1: Yeah, and did you submit the short stories anywhere or anything like that? No.
2: I didn't really even know you could. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I didn't, and I don't know. I don't know why. I think sometimes you know I should have maybe tried to do that a little bit more. But again, um, it was just for me. Maybe that was I was very busy in my mid to late twenties, you know, with kids and work. Yep and um like traveling and all that sort of stuff and so writing at that time was something nice um for me to enjoy not necessarily to show other people um, and not necessarily something that I wanted to like make any money from it was it was maybe a bit more personal than that and then um it was actually my 30th birthday party I had a few people around and my husband's uncle Uncle Q was there and he was someone that had read my first novel and we were talking and he's like so where's the next novel you know that one was really good I want to read something else and I said well I don't have time to write anything you know I've got work I've got kids and he just was like well that's nonsense if you you really enjoy something and if you're good at it you should find time to do it I don't believe that you don't have any time so initially I was a little bit annoyed, um, but the next day those words had obviously stayed with me because I do enjoy like, I do enjoy writing yeah. and it had annoyed me that I'd fallen away from it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the next day then, and I remember it was the 1st of September, um, I said to my husband the conversation and he says, well, look, I'll put the kids to bed tonight. Why don't you just spend an hour and just write? And we'll take turns. You do every other night doing the kids' bedtime routine. So every other night, you'll have one hour and just see what you can come up with. And so that's what restarted um, me writing properly.
1: And was that that the start of The Children of Gods and Fighting Men or was that something else?
2: It was something else, but it was linked. It was in the same time period. And it was the same, like for Morians and Tuodadan, were um, characters uh, that were in the in the book.
0: So, so you had this kind of hour every every other night, and I'm assuming did that end up becoming more? You know, I mean, because you you've written this uh, fantasy epic novel, which is a challenging book to write when you've got loads of time. But how did you find the time? Did you did you carve out more time for writing? Did it start to take up more and more of your time? What what was the process there? Um,
2: well, initially, no. Um, I do know however I checked my word count in the documents on the 31st of December just to see where I was and as I said I'd started on the 1st of September and there was 80,000 words in the document Oh, nice! and so when you looked at that I was like well you know when you're when you think of being a writer you think of someone that spends all day writing Mm -hmm. and sort of agonizing Mm -hmm. over their craft Um, but actually whenever you're very focused and you're doing it in short bursts with a limited time, I actually find it was very productive. Um, and I was fine. I found that worked. So I kept that up. And after two years I had a novel and that was really, and honestly it was just evenings and maybe the odd time if my husband took the kids out to a party and I was having a bit of me time, you know, I'd maybe mm-hmm. open my laptop for another hour or two, yeah. but it wasn't, um, there was no huge chunks of time um to write. It was just really every other evening.
1: And it's and, oh, yeah, quite impressive. Yeah, I know it is. And did you did you once once you had that novel, yes. did you start trying to get an agent or anything like that? Or
2: No. No. So okay. this book was two hundred and forty thousand words. Right. So, yeah. After one Google search, um, I realised this was way too long <laughs> um, for anyone um, to accept. So, and I also I actually read—I don't know what agent it was, but they they gave a list of seven things to do before you submit. And one of the things was let somebody else read it. Don't mm-hmm. don't let the agent be the first person to read your book. And obviously, I I'm at this stage now where. You know, I have kids, but my friends have kids and I didn't really want to ask somebody to take their time to read a book that I wasn't sure if was good. Mm -hmm. So I joined a website called Critique Circle. And it's a website where you can put a chapter up at a time um, and exchange for people reading your chapter. You essentially have to read their chapter or chapters of other people's work to get enough points. To submit your chapters right. okay, if that yeah. Makes. Yeah. Um, so I put my first chapter up and I got lots of really good feedback but also a lot of criticism um you know my grammar wasn't perfect um you know in typical fantasy fashion I had info dumped and had a massive long prologue and you know done all the things that fantasy writers do and it shouldn't be so that was brilliant um i was on critique circle like a lot um mm-hmm. for the next two years so how
0: was it i mean i mean that was your first time you've put your work out there to be read by the people the first time getting notes back
2: mm-hmm.
0: on your work you know was it was, was it quite hard to take at first or, or was it or did you view it as a really helpful process or did some of it hurt a little bit what, what was your thoughts
2: um well most people on those websites are really nice you get occasional people who aren't and um, you know can be very mean um, but the vast majority are nice and they want to help you and you just take you have to go with that Um, the occasional Mm -hmm. nasty person you know isn't worth getting annoyed over Um, so overall um, I find it extremely helpful and I do mention critique circle quite often when I talk about um, writing because I think being critiqued is really useful but also giving feedback on yeah. other people's work is also uh, an excellent way to learn how to write because you know I'm a say like so was at this stage I would have been like a new fantasy writer and I had done the info dump I had given a huge amount of historical information up front and when I was reading my own work I was reading it and enjoying it but yeah. when I read somebody else's new fantasy book that had the huge info dump historical setting or world building setting i was reading and going oh yeah that is boring and now whenever i see people have said that about my own work i understand why Mm -hmm. you know
0: so it's quite helpful to actually read other people's work in progress yeah to kind of spot the same mistakes that you were making yourself almost
2: exactly because everyone's making the same mistakes you know critique circle Mm -hmm. is a website where writers are mostly learning to write everyone Mm -hmm. is doing the same things some people have been there for years and you can see that their work is better some people have just started and you can see their work is not so good and then there's everything in between you know some people join and their work is already very good and some people can be there for a long time and it's not so enjoyable but it is a a website that is our um, as a community for people to learn and it's meant to be I suppose a safe space for that and that's that's what I find it to be.
1: And so so you, you were getting the feedback from Critique Circle and and things like that so I mean did that you know I'm just wondering what the path was from that to starting to write what has become uh, The Children of Gods and Fighting Men.
2: Okay so the this book I told you, that was, it was like 230 plus words. After two years of putting every chapter up onto Critique Circle and having people read every chapter, I got it down to about 180,000 words. Um, nice. You know, we had cut out um, storylines that didn't add anything. We had kind of uh, improved my use of language to make it be a bit uh, more succinct, um, you know, So, kind of, I thought I got my book into quite a good state, and we got it down to 180,000 words. And at that stage, I thought, well, I'm going to have a wee go here at submitting, Mm -hmm. um, which I did. So, uh, two years I'd spent writing, two years I'd spent editing. So now I went into a bit of a submission phase and learning how to do that. It's it's not easy.
1: No, is Um, this for agents
0: or for publishers? For agents, for agents. Agents, okay.
2: Um, so I sent it out, um, not to loads, um, but I obviously, I got a lot of no's, um, back. And at that stage, um, I I sort of knew myself, it didn't quite work as a novel, but I really wanted someone to read it, to tell me why, to tell me Mm -hmm. what I was doing wrong and what I was doing well. And there's a agent called John Gerald who, yep. uh, if you're on Twitter, you'll see him a lot. He talks a lot about um, writing and how to find an agent. And he, he did, at the time, have a service where you would pay him and he would read your book and he would give you feedback on it. So it wasn't an application uh, for him to be your agent. It was just yep. to someone yep. to read your book. So that, that book it had um, two timelines. One was set in the future and one was set in the 11th century Ireland. So whenever he read it and came back to me, he did say, look, you see the stuff that's set in the future. It's okay. Um, Lots of people are doing stuff like this and your work was okay. But the stuff that was set in the 11th century Ireland, that was really good. And whenever you left that timeline, I got annoyed. And whenever I came back to that timeline, I was happy. Mm -hmm. So he was like, well, And I suppose he was saying, I haven't read anything like that. That's different. That's new. That's interesting. Can you write a book just in that setting? Because I think that would work. And that's something that you're very strong at. You know, the world building was there, the historical research was there, and that was something that he had enjoyed. And it so happened um, that in this time period where I'd been submitting and being rejected, I had started The Children of Gods and Fighting Men, which just so happened I had decided myself to do something a bit simpler. Um, and the, having the one timeline, um, I suppose for me it kind of made it instantly like an easier story yeah. to structure. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's that's how I started. Then, um, the Children of Gods and Fighting Men,
1: and and so um, once once you got started with that, taking you you said uh, two years to write that first one, and then another two years editing. What what was the sort of pace of um, the Children of Gods and Fighting Men?
2: I finished that and had edited it completely within a year
1: right wow and and then um did you did you start submitting to agents again at, at that point then
2: um well I, I sent it out to a few readers uh, not chapter at a time i didn't use critique circle that time but i'd had a few friends i'd met um on critique circle mm-hmm. who just agreed to read the whole novel Um, So I got mostly good feedback, Um, you know, there was again a few things that people thought could be better or timed up and so I spent a bit of time doing that. And then COVID hit um, by this stage, Um, yeah, because it's probably a year of submissions and kind of faffing around (laughs) after editing the first book. Um, So yes, then COVID hit. And I did send off my book at that stage to agents and I didn't get much response initially. <laughs> and I think obviously that was because COVID had hit and I'm sure everybody was struggling with working from home and homeschooling and yeah. the chaos that um, that year brought on everybody.
1: Yeah. And, and then I, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, jump forward slightly and because I know this to be the case, you 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 ended up being picked up by a publisher directly. Is that is that right? Yes.
2: So what happened is after um, I sent out my first batch, I actually had had three offers from small presses. So the agents hadn't been interested, but the small presses had been. Mm-hmm. Um, and for one reason or another, even though they were all legitimate small presses. Um, none of them felt like a good fit or mm. some issue would have come up and I kind of came away and thought mm, no that none of this is working um kind of start again or I will self-publish mm-hmm. so I actually at that stage had committed to self-publishing I had booked in booked in uh, a, an editor um so I could get somebody to go through my book but the editor had a four-month waiting list And I just thought, well, do you know what? Of four months here, I'll send off to um, some more agents. And that is when I noticed that Head of Zeus had an open window. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, lots of um, publishers do have open windows every so often. Um, Angry Robot had one, I think, a few months ago. Um, And Head of Zeus was just happened to have their open window when I was looking again. So I sent off to four or five agents and to Head of Zeus, and I just thought, well, that's my sort of last go at doing this, and then I'll give self-publishing a go. And then yeah. um, all of the agents got back with full manuscript requests. <laughs> I did head and of this, and <laughs> joking. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird because obviously my first book had just got rejected. The second, so with my second book, when I'd sent off to agents initially. I think I had one full manuscript request, which was a no, and then the small presses said yes, but they didn't work out. So this go was crazy. Suddenly to have a lot of interest, um, and like yeah, so I had four agents had asked for the full, and then head of Zeus had asked for the full as well.
1: And did, did you know why? I think did you did you? I think you said previously that you'd had someone look over your synopsis or something in between those two. Um, batches of submissions do you think that made a difference
2: possibly that was the only thing I had changed um so I did I, I I think my synopsis somebody had read it and thought I didn't really focus on the main characters enough um and I'd got a bit too bogged down with explaining the world and they said no you need to focus on the the story so it, I changed my synopsis um but everything else was the same and I don't know why I don't know if it was a bit of a vaccine bounce and suddenly the agents were up and looking again um it could be the agents that I had picked this time were some of my favorite agents who I felt would like my book and they had been closed to right, okay, previously yeah. so I think you know that's very important too you know you need to submit to agents that you think will like your work in the first place yeah. um and then also I do think because my book, um, you know. Kind of the buzzwords are historical fiction, fantasy, mythology. And I do think um, the popularity of books like Circe and Song of Achilles. um, And there is a whole load now of Greek mythology retellings. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think maybe the market had just shifted in that year Mm. and suddenly, possibly my cover letter suddenly felt like a better prospect. But I don't know. Maybe you'd have to ask the agents. (laughs)
0: So what happened then? So you had these four agents asking for fools and head of Zeus, and what, what happened next?
2: So one agent and head of Zeus made an offer um, on Good. the same day. Oh.
1: <laughs> what a day.
2: <laughs> I know. Tense,
1: I know yeah.
2: It was a bit of a crazy day. So head of Zeus made an offer to publish a trilogy. They made me a trilogy offer. Um, Fantastic. Uh, and with or without an agent, I, I didn't need an agent. Um, I could have just signed with them then and there. Um, but i wanted an agent
1: had you uh, pitched it as a trilogy yeah right yep yeah, okay yeah.
2: so that was what they had offered and um, but i sorry i felt like i myself i would have wanted an agent um i think you know there are difficult discussions sometimes to have when you're publishing a book and it's sometimes nice to have an agent who is just always on your side in those mm-hmm. discussions yeah um so for me it felt important and then Once I had those offers in, then I notified, I only notified the agents that had the fills um, to say, look, I've been made an offer. Um, You know, I'll give you a couple of weeks to -hmm. see if you're interested. And so another two agents made an offer of representation at that point as well.
0: Wow. So now you've, now you've got three offers from agents and the head of Zeus. Yeah. How do you, how do you whittle down those, those offers? What do you, what do you look for?
2: Oh, I was so stressed out it was so difficult because you have spent your whole time kind of really wanting an agent and feeling quite desperate Mm -hmm. you know at at this stage I I really wanted an agent and then like how do you do it when it's the other way you know when they're what they're like pitching to you at this this stage Mm -hmm. um I had zoom calls with with all of them and they were all lovely and they were all just so nice and had fantastic authors that they worked with um, and
0: do they have ideas on what they would do with the book? Did they have, did they have like ways they wanted to change it?
2: Well, one of, so Head of Zeus, when they, when I had spoken to them, they really liked it as is. Um, the only thing they wanted me to change was to add two chapters at the end of the book. They thought it just ended too quickly. Um, So the two, the agents that I asked, two of them were in agreement with Head of Zeus that they thought the book was correct as it was you know in terms of structure mm. and what I had done one of the agents wanted me to change it um so even though that agent was absolutely lovely um I didn't go with them and it wasn't that I was adverse to making changes um I think it's quite common when you're you're writing and publishers want mm. to take you on it was just a change that she, that um this agent wanted me to make it was just something I'd specifically gone out of my way to not do in this novel and so it was just like a fundamental yeah you know, like yeah, i can't make yeah, that change
1: enough. yeah so i mean um obviously since then picked up you, you got the agent you, you got the. you got the deal uh the book is out uh, next month um mm-hmm. which actually coincides is it what is it the first of september is it yeah. that that oh a serendipitous date that yeah, is three years yeah. to the day you started uh, um, but um exactly. uh, so yeah i mean how how does that feel does it feel real yet that yeah. it's going to be coming out
2: no it doesn't feel very real um yeah it's been a crazy year um there's been a lot going on um i know when i say to to friends and families who aren't writers the year well it um feels like a long time to for a book to come out but a lot is a lot has to happen behind the scenes um there's you know three rounds of edits and then um kind of the art the cover art discussions and you know I don't know there's just there's so much in this PR and marketing that discussions to have so there has been a lot happening so we're getting to the end of that phase now and the book like some bloggers actually have copies of my book already <laughs> I've been seeing it on Twitter all <laughs> week um, and I think mine should be arriving tomorrow, so nice. that might make it more real whenever I yeah, have yeah. like my physical copy in my hand.
1: Excellent
0: well we've we've talked about the about the book, but let's let's hear what the book's actually about. Why don't you tell us what children of gods and fighting men is about?
2: Okay, so it's a historical fiction fantasy set in tenth century Ireland. So there are two tribes of magical people in Ireland at this time. There are the descendants of the two and there are Fomorians and they are both vying for, I suppose, control of Ireland, but as are all the mortals who live in Ireland at the time. Uh, so we have Irish kings and we have Vikings who are fighting for control of the land of Ireland and I suppose it's the weaving of these three tribes of people um and, into a time of huge conflict
1: yeah well i mean I, I said before we started recording that i am i'm fortunate enough to be to be able to be reading it now and i'm really enjoying it and obviously it is this epic sort of historical fantasy it's based on the 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 myths of of ireland which um you obviously know a lot about um but did you is is that something that you just grew up hearing these stories and loving these stories and wanted to incorporate in your own
2: yeah so um obviously um well I've lived in Ireland for about 30 years now um but uh, I was born in England but uh, we moved over when I was young and all my family's from Ireland so um yeah like Irish mythology is really everywhere you know it's in children stories it's in you know murals on the wall uh it's in songs and in stories and books so my granny, uh, she would write stories about the Tuatha Dé And so I had copies of her stories, even when I was very little, that I would read and I loved. And so, you know, just as I grew up, it's just there are stories that I gravitated towards yeah. um, and really loved and enjoyed. And the internet era has actually made it easier to read some of these stories. Uh, most of the Irish mythologies we have were written by monks, uh, kind of between the 9th and maybe 14th, 15th centuries. So they are now mostly uh, access... You can access them for free on the internet uh, because the translations are available in some of the Dublin universities. Uh, so as I got older and the internet became a thing, um, I was able to read a lot of the, the stories in their original form. Cool. Um, and I loved that. you know... There's so many stories and Irish mythology, it isn't known very well. Mm-hmm. I feel like Irish folklore is known mm-hmm. more, uh, you know, like uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People is based on Irish folklore, which is like Banshees and Leprechauns. Mm-hmm. But Irish mythology is older than that. And that was what I was more interested in.
0: When you're when you're writing something that's based on um, kind of these stories and how closely did you want to stick to them? Did you, and when you look at the historical stuff, do you did you feel a, a pressure to kind of keep it realistic? Did you want to have have more? I mean, I know there's fantasy in it, so you've got that kind of leeway there. But but how, what was the balance between between realism and fantasy?
2: So, um, see if you were to read any Irish mythological stories, they are often historical fantasy. Mm-hmm. So you have what we think are real kings and queens interacting mm-hmm. with mythological characters. So that's quite normal um, in mythology, just as a, as a starting point that you would have a, a grounded historical setting and then you would have magical people acting within the story. Um, but in Irish mythology, it sort of ends uh, when Finn Michael's son Oshane comes back from Tirannogh And he's gone off to Ternanog, which is a magical place. And when he comes back, he has aged, even though he was only there for a day. And when he comes back to Ireland, the magic has gone from Ireland. And in one of the versions of those stories, St. Patrick is there and talks to him. And basically, you know, it is to kind of shorten the story. Christ has come there is a new religion now, and the magic of Ireland and right. the paganism that kind of that fed into that's gone. That's in the past now. So, I did like that version of the story, um, and I didn't. I find it like sad when I was reading it when I was younger that the magic had gone, <laughs> <laughs> and that I think is why Irish folklore started, which is it's after this time where you have fairies and the little people and they're magical. Uh, And the fairy people actually are the two of the Danon because they were banished underground. That's where that that myth and legend comes from. So whenever I was thinking about this, I thought, well, I don't like that ending. I don't like that being the ending of why magic in Ireland died. So I wanted to write my own ending. Mm -hmm. So in my story, it's kind of a few centuries later. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are people in Ireland who still have magical powers but the magic is beginning to fade Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the historical setting which is 10th century Ireland I think in order to have the fantasy there that had to be really grounded I think if I had made that figgy twee or I don't know excessive in any way it would have ruined the story so whenever we have the setting which uh you know we've got monster we've got maze, and the different kingdoms within ireland and we've got viking ports um dublin being one of them i wanted that to be really real i wanted you to read those chapters and feel like that you were there
1: i mean it's it's a hugely rich canvas to to sort of play about with and tell a story and obviously and it is as you say it's it's something that it's a it's a setting that people feel they know something of so it's familiar i suppose but they don't actually know these stories uh, you know not many people know these stories and stuff so mm. it has a, maybe that's what as well what publishers and agents liked about it that there is that familiarity with ireland obviously but it's these stories that people don't actually know that that you're you're bringing to life again which is which is quite cool as well
2: I hope so. I mean, I think uh, the success of The Last Kingdom, which is a historical fiction uh, series and it's a TV show, you know, it's not uh, too dissimilar uh, to that, but Ireland culturally is very different to England too. So I think people who like historical fiction in that era kind of maybe will like the story, but will also enjoy the differences. You know, it isn't England, it is Ireland. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's lots of differences and there's even differences with how the Irish interact with the Vikings um if you read the last kingdom you know the Vikings are pagan um Wessex is Christian and there's like a religious um kind of battle going on whereas in Ireland the Irish conversion had happened but the Irish were not devout Mm -hmm. and so in my story, the the Vikings are starting to convert, and actually, there is no religious conflict at this time. It is purely a conflict over land and power that yeah. drives the story. So, I think there is familiarity, uh, but there is enough differences to make it feel new.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, well, let's let's chat about your your process um, when you when you sit down to actually write. Um, you know how much. Planning, how much of that time spent, that kind of hour that you had at, at, at first, how much of that do you spend planning what you're going to write or or how much do you just jump into it and just and just see what happens?
2: I try to do a bit of both. Um, I think because mine has a historical fiction element, um, there are certain events that have to happen, you know, that's in the history and that's what I'm following. And I know certain characters are going to die because it's supported yeah. um, at that event or at that period. Um, but in terms of the characters, you know, you can't always follow exactly the timeline yeah. or the structure. You know, characters need to breathe and they need to react properly. Um, there has been many a time I've had a thought in my head as to what the chapter should be like. And then the characters won't do what I've asked them to do, you know. And then so you have to change the characters. And again, I think it's to make your book believable. The characters have to act properly. Mm-hmm. And they have to come first. Everything else can sort of shift and move around them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, we've spoken about this to, to, to previous guests about it, it, more straight historical fiction, I suppose. Where, you know, there's that there's that sort of push and pull between authenticity and accuracy. And yeah. I, I always veer towards the authenticity side. You want it to feel real, but whether it actually happened on that Saturday that that person, you know... That to me is much less important. If I'm reading a novel, obviously if it's a history book, that's something different. But if it's a if it's clearly a novel, then I want the authenticity of the time period. But I, the accuracy isn't so vital to me as a reader, anyway.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then I well, I think I've tried to be very accurate um, in terms of anything that is happening in the historical timeline. Yeah. Um, there's a few changes because there's lots of Olafs. Um, at that time, and we don't want three Olaf's in yep. one hall. Um, but mostly, it's all all fairly accurate. But and again, unlike England, Irish history recordings of the time are few and far between. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot um, there, and so you have a bit more freedom whenever yep. you know you, you don't like like Hilary Mantel, who wrote Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. Mm-hmm. There is so much. Uh, documentation of the Tudor uh, histories that I'm sure she could have researched for years and years and years, but it's not the case in in Irish history at this time.
1: Yeah,
0: and and how do you how do you keep track of all of all the people in your book? You know, um, I think that the start of your book has a huge list of everyone who's in it, and in your own head, I mean, it sounds to me that you must have a, sp- a spreadsheet of people's names and where they are and what has to happen to them historically and is that difficult to kind of work out to fit the story in between all those kind of points you have to hit
2: i didn't find that too hard i don't know i think with history it's something i love um you know i was listening to your podcast with adrian Tychoski, and i could tell that his book about the spiders was something you know that he just was so into because it was something he was so passionate about yeah yeah, and I just think when you write something that you're passionate about and you know a lot about and I'd been researching this for like 10-20 years at this point that I didn't find it too difficult I didn't find that I had to balance the characters or who was that character and where did they come in I knew because I had just been involved in that period of history for for so long at that point
0: i suppose i suppose that's how it has to be and to to really to write it well with confidence and and to make it feel authentic you need to have that kind of almost innate knowledge of who they are and you're not having to go back and be like oh what's that guy's name Who was the father of so yeah that's right you're pulling yourself out of it the whole time i I think
1: i think that definitely lends itself to the to the authenticity side of things as well because if if you're you know i can think of books where i've read where it's clearly someone has very assiduously researched something but it comes through too much in the book um whereas if it's something that is close to someone and like you you've been carrying it for 20 years or whatever then you can tell that story but you can give it breathing room I think you're not desperate to get down all of that stuff that research that you know and stuff like that
2: yeah I think that's important too that and again that was my first flaw as a writer Mm -hmm. is doing too much information dumping yeah. in mm-hmm. uh, you don't need to do that um, you need to let the characters breathe and interact with the other characters and you know the world builds naturally that way
1: and uh, uh, moving on to the sort of the, the the actual process with the publisher and stuff obviously you said there are three rounds of edits that, that you've had in um, obviously different types of edits but that's the first time that you've gone through something like that uh, you had the critique circle feedback but actually getting the edits from the publisher. I mean, was how how did you find that process? Was there anything that you weren't sure about, what to push back on or anything like that?
2: Um, well, when Head of Zeus made the offer, they set up front about they wanted two chapters at the end. Mm. Uh, they felt it had finished too abruptly. So I suppose I went into uh, the edits knowing their main issue. Yeah. Um, and all the other structural pieces were quite... Uh, small you know there was nothing major it was maybe just trying to bring out a bit more emotion in a scene or to kind of give a character a bit more time to think about something uh, but it wasn't major it was the last two chapters where it was a big um was a big edit because you know you had to think of a way to end the novel that didn't feel like i just stuck something on the end yeah. added out you know you needed to do something
0: and and obviously book two is is out i think amara is out next year book two in the trilogy and 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 so this is obviously you know you signed up for you, you you'd you written one book when you signed up with them Um, you had to them um, i think you had the ideas for books two and three kind of in your in in your head you knew where it, it, it was going did they give you help or advice did they or did they make any changes that made you think oh i need to change where it's going did you have to like sign off future books with them or was it quite open?
2: Um, well, I did send them a synopsis of book two and three. Um, but actually, because, remember I said, I'd sort of started to submit uh, during lockdown and then I didn't have kind of any offers to start off with. Um, I was already about 50,000 words into book two.
1: Okay. Then oh, nice.
2: the offer from Head of Zeus came in. Uh, so I already was very confident about the story of book two. You know, I knew where it was going and what was going to happen. Um so no, I f- and then actually the only thing was I had to change the start because i changed the ends.
1: Yeah. Book one.
2: So it had to start in a slightly different place. But that was it. It wasn't uh it wasn't anything teenager.
1: And have you found that that process of writing a book obviously you had a big chunk of it written already, but you've you've now got deadlines and things like that. Has that been an issue or have you have you been okay with that sort of thing?
2: Well, I have just handed in book two. Um, to head of Zeus um, it was hard you know even though I had uh, the start of it written um, because I said before I was writing for an hour every other yeah. night or as and when I could um, if I had a busy time at work I wouldn't write at all um, but the last few months before the deadline to hand it in you know I was definitely <laughs> working every evening into the small hours of the night um, to get it finished you know, it's it's hard when you're trying to juggle um, a, a job, kids, family and writing, you know, it is. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And yeah. I, we, we spoke, re- I, I think you may have listened to the episode with Ed MacDonald that we spoke to uh, recently. Mm-hmm. And he said that he's always found the second book of a trilogy the hardest mm-hmm. one to write because you don't have that freedom of the first book where you're where you're able to set the world up as you want kind of a thing. And you've got to kind of set everything up for the third book, but you can't—you know—it still needs to be a book on its own. I mean, did you did you find any of those difficulties with the second book?
2: I do not well. I suppose I haven't had <laughs> haven't had my first edit yet. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> they, they could come back and say they want a lot changed. But his podcast did horrify me a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> and he said that in the second book they told him he needed a whole new villain. Yeah, and he had to completely yeah. re- rewrite a whole character, like if they do that to me i'm going to do <laughs> um yeah so I'll, I'll have to see i'll have to see what they come back with and and say but i really enjoyed the second book um i in any trilogy i always prefer the second book it's always my favorite um and in movies you know empire strikes yeah, that's back is yeah, the it's best. classic isn't it yeah. um the two towers is the best um in the lord of the rings um because i sort of feel This is when the characters either grow or kind of they turn, yeah. And I love that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you get you can have the most fun with the characters, I suppose. In in the second book, you can do anything to them because you can fix it in the third one. But and I I think um, I'm right in saying that as well. You're hopefully going to have more time coming up to write in the future. Is that right?
2: Yes, so I have um, reduced my hours significantly um, in work, um, and sh- soon I will be writing full time.
0: Excellent. Yeah, the dream.
2: it is a dream. Well, do you know what I mean? It's might not be easy. It's not the best time possibly to have done this during a cost of living crisis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um,
2: but I have been working for oh gosh. Um, I don't know, 17 years now. And I just think, well, I'll give it a rattle for a couple of years. And if it all goes horribly wrong, there will be yeah, more jobs.
0: You know, exactly. Yeah. It's not like this is your last chance to ever get a job again in the future. Is it? So, yeah, yeah. And I think as you say, it's, it's 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 more time to write. It's more time to focus. And and you, and you want to feel like you're giving it your all, don't you, that when you, if you? If you're going to give it a go.
2: That's it. That is it. Because I know that your first question was, you know, did you always want to be a writer? And my answer was no in terms of a career, um, but I always did want to write. And now suddenly I find that I yeah. can do both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, that for me is huge. That's a big deal. Um, I would love this to be my full-time career. And as you say, I think you have to, if you get the chance to do something you really want to do, you have to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, I've got three kids. So anyone out there with kids will know that childcare costs or huge
0: (laughs) yeah there's a nice saving there you made so
2: uh, yeah so it's not um too much of a a lifestyle change anyway
0: nice excellent and is is irish mythology a genre that you would always want to write in or do you think once you finish with these three books you would want to move on to something else
2: well i do have a plan for another trilogy which is set in the same world um, and we'll have would potentially have some of the same characters Cool. cool So, but of course, we have to see how the first trilogy does as to whether or not that's feasible. Um, In terms of other stories I would want to write, I think if I wasn't going to continue in this world, I would try something different. I'd maybe do epic fantasy is something that I would probably gravitate towards next.
1: Cool. Nice. Well, plenty plenty of time hopefully to, to explore these these different options. Yeah. Yes. And and are you are you getting a chance for are you having a, a, a proper launch, book launch or anything like that?
2: Yes, it's in Waterstones in Belfast on the first of September. So mm-hmm. I'm very much looking forward to that and I'm glad that's that like in person events are mm-hmm. back on. It'll be lovely to see some friends and family that I haven't seen um, in a while. And to celebrate as well, and maybe to have a bit of a fun night out afterwards.
1: Yeah, yeah for sure. No, that would be amazing. Brilliant. So what was the last book that you read?
2: The last book I finished was Empire of Silence by Christopher Rocchio.
1: Cool.
0: Nice. I've heard of that book. I've not, I've not read it. But it's really I, good. I've definitely heard of it.
2: yeah. Yeah. I'm not a huge sci-fi reader. Um, it, the, the science parts go over my head, um, but this is more space opera.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, okay.
2: And sort of a bit like Dune, a bit like Gladiator, but with fantastical elements as well. So I really enjoyed that.
0: Excellent. Nice. Um, what about the last film that you watched?
2: Thor, Love and Thunder.
0: Was it good? Did you like
2: it? I really liked it. <laughs>
0: yeah, I liked it as well. I know it got a lot of bad, bad press, but uh, it, was, it was quite a fun, fun watch, I have to say.
2: Well, yeah. I th- well, I went to watch it with my kids, so um, sometimes I don't have very high expectations <laughs> when I go to watch movies they take me to see. Um, so this is this was good. I I enjoyed watching it um i think it's sort of got a good mix of action and humor it's not too serious
0: yeah, yeah. it's quite it's kind of a throwaway film but it was quite quite a fun watch I
1: thought. yeah cool uh, and uh the last tv show that you watched or are, are watching
2: so i'm watching two at the minute um i'm watching obi-wan with my kids mm-hmm. and i'm watching oh yeah well we're on the last episode we've got one episode to go so it hasn't been as good as The Mandalorian.
1: No,
0: is it not incredibly infuriating how slowly Princess Leia runs and how no one is? <laughs> well, able there's, to no, catch but all, there's
1: lots of slow chases in the whole <laughs> show, yeah. like when Darth sees him on that planet and he, he runs between you know, his, and the overcoat scene when he's escaping. Ob- from, oh, I mean, it's like a comedy. Yeah, overwork- no, it, yeah. I, I have to say I've been quite infuriated by it. But um, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, sorry, what was the second program that you were watching? <laughs>
2: Yellow Jackets. Oh,
1: all
0: right. oh that's great. great. Yeah, that was, that's, that's good. That's a much better TV show. So.
2: <laughs> it is freaking me out slightly, though, that one of the characters is called Shauna. <laughs> <laughs> that very rarely happens to me.
0: <laughs> uh, well, the, the very, very last thing we do is a uh, super quick fire either or. So um, I always say there's no right answer apart from one. But we'll start with Abercr- Drew Abercrombie or George R.R. R. Martin.
2: George.
1: Uh tv or cinema
2: tv
0: uh night owl or early bird
2: Mm, i would say night owl but i also like afternoons we need a we need an afternoon (laughs) like afternoon afternoon pigeon or some sort of (laughs) that's yeah
1: because a lot a lot of people don't find themselves not productive but you like you enjoy writing in the afternoon if you get the chance
2: yeah that's kind of my brain is awake and i find that's when i'm at my best night times can be good too definitely not mornings
1: cool and uh music or no music when you're when you're writing
2: music when i'm writing no music when i'm editing
1: okay
0: cool okay right um and the last one real book or ebook uh
2: real book
1: (sighs) (laughs) Good oh,
0: turn. <laughs> Epic fantasy mythology. It was, it was never going to be ebook. was, it? It was
1: <laughs> No, you need them on anything, your shelf. An old tome. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a great episode. Thanks very much to Shauna for coming on. And uh, yeah, before before we talk about any of the important stuff, she spoke about. She also just picking up on what she was saying about watching Obi Wan there. As I. As I hinted, at <laughs> uh, I wasn't a massive fan of the show. I mean, what did you think of it?
0: Uh, I thought it was all right. Um, I, I, quite a lot of silly stuff annoyed me, like the kind of re- repetitive chase scenes with bad guys just couldn't quite grab yeah. Leah, this child who's running about, you know, one meter an hour or something in front of them. That that I just things like that really kind of bugged me. Maybe it shouldn't have, but I just couldn't couldn't kind of get into. it. I never quite got over the feeling of that it was a bit inconsequential as well yeah
1: absolutely you kind of knew yeah. what had to be in yeah. place at the end of it so it kind of lost yeah. the tension and when my eight-year-old daughter's pick, pointing out lots of plot holes as i'm watching <laughs> it then it, you have to you have to wonder about the quality of it yeah. i mean i, I really like you and mcgregor's obi-wan but yeah I no wasn't, totally i wasn't um, it's, you know it's some really,
0: really nice looking lightsaber battles and stuff but um never really kind of cared yeah mainly because you kind of know the outcome i suppose a lot of a lot of the stuff so yeah Yeah, I think that was the problem. So,
1: anyway, um, talking about what the important stuff, the writing stuff that Shona was talking to us about, I I thought that was a really interesting episode. And just um, we talked at the start about her her submission process, but even the writing process of just deciding to you know write an hour a day um, enabled her to get you know this really lengthy novel written. In, in what is relatively a short space of time. It, it, I mean, we, obviously we've spoken about it many times before, but it does just show the importance of habit to writing and just you, yep. you don't need to yep. set yourself a word count or anything, but if you can just set out a little bit of time every day, it doesn't have yeah. to be a lot, then you'll suddenly find after a few months that you've, you've got a, a lot there that you can work with.
0: Yeah, I think whenever you if you sit down and think, right, I've got to write 80,000 words, you know, it seems like this massive gigantic mm-hmm. task. And I think as you see, it's just, it's just about working on the little bit in front of you and just not thinking about the, the bigger mountain that you're climbing and just put one foot in front of the other. And yeah, you will get there eventually.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the critique circle website that you mentioned there sounded quite useful. So yeah, um, we'll really. try and put a link to that in the, in the podcast uh, description if I can, if I can find it. But um As I say, thanks very much to Shauna for coming on to the podcast. Her book, The Children of Gods and Fighting Men, is now out. And as I say, lots of buzz around it. You'll find it in the highlights section of all your big bookshops and everything. So, uh, yeah, recommend you pick that one up as soon as possible. Um, But we've got another great guest next week.
0: Next week, we are chatting with the fantastic Gordon J. Brown, the J... Being important, yes, not, not the former chancellor, <laughs> not, the former, <laughs> not the, the former prime minister, even. Yeah, <laughs> um, he's a, he's a crime author. He sometimes writes under the pseudonym Morgan Cry, and his latest book is Six Wounds. Um, he's also, uh, topically for when the episode is coming out, the co founder of Bloody Scotland, which is Scotland's probably biggest crime festival uh, um, around and is, is a few weeks away. Crime so, writing festival, crime we writing say. It's not a festival so, like of a festival crime. <laughs> That would be an interesting one, um, yeah. So it's it's a re- it's a really fun chat, a really interesting chat, and uh, a lot of a lot of stuff about working behind the scenes and festivals and writing books. And you spend yeah. some t- a lot of time in Spain,
1: yeah, me. yeah, which is where he sort of set some of his books and stuff, yeah. which is quite a, you know, as we discuss in the episode, it's quite a good setting for for those types of books. I think yeah. so. Yeah, um, please do tune in for that one. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode please do take time to uh, give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app and, uh, you know, like, follow, subscribe to the podcast and to our social media channels. That would be great as well.
0: And of course, if you'll want to get in touch, you can always send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at UK page one or send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk.
1: Yep, but otherwise have a great week and we'll speak to you next episode.
0: See you later.